newspaper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. Here's the Media Project, which is a half hour of conversation among some veterans of the news media industry about what's going on in it today. And we hope that our conversation is enlightening for our listeners. I'm Rex Smith here of the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union. That would be me. Here's Judy Patrick, formerly editor of the Daily Gazette, now vice president of the New York Press Association. Ira Fassfeld is here, the uh, longtime and former publisher of the Daily Freeman in Kingston, New York. And, of course, there's Dr. Alan Shartok, communication professor, commentator, and the CEO of Northeast Public Radio. What do you have to say for yourself, Alan? I'm glad I'm not formerly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm happy to be formerly. Yeah, formerly's right. nice. Formerly's kind of nice. Yeah. I recommend it. Yeah, yeah. Not that we're... Well, you guys are all so, you know, formally that you need to protect your territory. Well, there you go. We're formers standing in our field, uh, as that saying <laughs> goes. Uh, cesspool of misinformation is what Dr. Anthony Fauci says about Twitter, although he says he doesn't participate in it. So why should we care about Twitter? Judy, you're the youngest person in the room, so why don't you (laughs) tell us? So Elon Musk has acquired Twitter, taken it private, and is trashing the platform, which used to be a fairly good place to find breaking news and to get witty commentary. I used to love it in that way. But he's brought the loonies in, and you're seeing he's reinstated bad actors. You're seeing a lot more QAnon-related content in there. We think of it as a journalistic tool in in the U.S., but around the world, Twitter is an important way to get information out quickly. Now, there are other social media platforms out there that are arising, but especially for liberal young people in America, they don't know where to go. Some of them are going to these alternative sites, but they're just not taking off. And it's interesting that Fauci doesn't follow Twitter. Nobody I know, no, none of my friends, no, none of my family is on Twitter. And so it's only colleagues, I think, to uh, Twitter. I thought, yeah. I thought it was point that Twitter was dying and then Donald Trump came around and revived it with Donald Trump's departure it kind of lost some of its vigor but Elon Musk is trashing it he's eliminating content controls he's eliminated their communication department he's eliminated so many means to valuably make that moderated so what's his game plan why is he doing exactly you know Twitter was and is still popular although far less I know I've lost a couple of hundred of my followers and vice versa as a result of the recent events but why did he spend $44 billion to buy this company to rip it up? And- oh, well, I think that was a mistake, don't you? I think that he made a mistake, and now he's just making the most of it by just drawing attention to himself. I think he's a psychopath. I think he likes attention. Yeah, yeah. Because he does these crazy tweets. He does tweets that make no sense. He does tweets that are far-right, exposing far-right views. 
And I think he's not the genius that a lot of people he thought he was. He builds good rockets, you know, and good cars. I think he hires engineers that <laughs> do yeah, that. He's not really building the rockets, is he? He's like uh, that weird yeah. kid in junior high school that everybody <laughs> yeah. kind of ignored. But you've got to give him credit because, after all, we are talking about him. Mm. He has done a good deal of things that garner the public attention. Um, and so it's not that easy to dismiss somebody like this. Well, if your goal is attention, but Alan, I mean, you decided two things that uh, have to do. Certainly with, not true in my case. Just no. It just you're deciding just getting attention though, and and he's not doing what he's now doing. He actually, because of this purchase of Twitter, he has dropped from being the world's richest man. He's now second. Uh, I feel bad. <laughs> I really do. You know, and he's always been such a big proponent of free speech. But what I've seen is a, a few instances where he showed up at a Dave Chappelle comedy show and apparently got roundly booed. And any videos of that have been suppressed. Uh-huh. Uh, the, there's uh, one of the Twitter accounts is a young man who follows Elon Musk's plane and where it's going and where it's come from. He's done it long before Elon Musk bought Twitter. And Musk is announcing that he's going to go after him. He shut down the account and he's going to file a lawsuit against him so much for free speech and having fun on the internet so what about the the so-called twitter files musk has been releasing this information from inside twitter which he now has access to as the sole owner of the platform releasing it to three chosen journalists who are writing about how twitter held back reporting about such things as hunter biden's laptop and that sort of thing And it's interesting, the only people who really know much about this are the people who watch Fox News because they're making a big deal out of this. Fox News, The Washington Examiner, and uh, The New York Post. Yeah. Well, is that a mistake on the part of the other media? Well, I can't speak to the short strokes of this story, but from what I gather, these so-called Twitter files have now been looked at or looked at more closely by mainstream journalists, and they basically decided there's not a lot of there there. So that doesn't prevent, as is their will on many different stories, it doesn't prevent those aforementioned three outlets to just keep reporting it, reporting it, reporting it. And the people who watch and read them believe it. But you know, what happened here is interesting, and I think it goes to how journalism does its job. There was this group at Twitter that, is, as Judy mentioned, Musk has disbanded, the Trust and Safety Advisory Group. And there were content moderators, actually, which we on this show have talked about social media needing. Publishers ought to be making decisions about what's appropriate to publish. And the digital sites, under the protection of Section 230 of the Communications Act, have not had to bear liability for anything that they might publish. And so they claim we're just a digital platform. We're technology. We're not really publishers. And here we had Twitter actually wrestling with this issue of, is this newsworthy? Is this fair? Is this valid? And making judgments. And now the fact that they did that is being held up as so-called censorship. When what it seems to me is it was actually an effort to actually do something akin to journalism on these platforms, which Musk has now gotten rid of. Musk is trying to just open up Twitter to be this open space where anything goes. And as we found out in the Wild West in the days before law came to the prairie, (laughs) anything goes is a dangerous kind of a situation. Is there another Twitter out there now bubbling up from the ground? And if so, what is it? Nothing big enough, right? There are these little amalgams that are trying to be, and people are going onto those other platforms. But I don't know that there's anything that quite replaces it as, especially globally, where there are like uh, 700 million users. So here's an old man question is, 
Twitter akin to TikTok, which is the other big platform? Could TikTok replace Twitter? And TikTok is a video platform, and Twitter is fundamentally, it carries video, but it is also fundamentally words. But TikTok is owned by China or interests mm-hmm. of China, so there's the fear in this country that China is, what, brainwashing Americans? Well, a fear that is actually being pushed by Republican politicians. There's not really going to be a ban of TikTok, especially because it's all young people who really love it. But these people like Marco Rubio of Florida are claiming, oh, well, we're going to ban TikTok or restrict it. It's just playing the China card, basically. I love TikTok. I mean, you I do? yeah, i endlessly fascinated by these videos, and I can't tell you how many videos they have decided I want to see showing pastrami sandwiches from cats. <laughs> so you can see where my algorithm has, has led them. Cats's. Well, I don't blame you. Cats's pastrami is it's it's a the funny best. How many, but you'd be yeah. surprised how many videos are posted of a pastrami sandwich and pizza places and Italian pastry place. That's what's on my algorithm. <laughs> I'm getting a lot of young people tumbling, acrobatics. Uh, oh, I don't see that. I also but... see a lot of scantily clad women, and I swear no, to you, I'm not no, trying to terrible. find them. Really? Hmm. Yeah, that's the algorithm. Yeah, and that's the, and they, they never explain to us how the algorithms how work, but everyone's suspicion is if it's driving hate or if it's driving divisiveness, it gets a higher profile. If it's a peace, love, and Merry Christmas, you're not going to see yeah, as but much it's, of it. But it's also very popular. It's true, and but Twitter has the advantage of just being words. You don't have to produce yeah. a video, but I think for younger people, definitely TikTok is the yeah. more... Well, I dare you, if, you tra- if you've never been on TikTok, go on it and see if you can get off within 15 minutes, because it's fascinating. You never oh. know what the next one's going to be. It's like eating potato chips. Yeah. Huh? But there are dangers or with TikTok, sandwich. because, I mean, it is, the company is a Chinese company, and there are underlying concerns about data privacy and what they might do with their algorithms to influence the politics in other countries. I mean, those issues are real and are something that's being addressed by committees in Congress. Hmm. And this is what's helped putting newspapers out of business. Well, I mean, doesn't this speak to, (laughs) here's something that's really worth discussing. Maybe our problem, we in the legacy media, is that we never really bought into the lesson that we should have learned about the attention span of our readers, our viewers, our listeners. Maybe TikTok and Twitter have been so wonderfully successful because they actually paid attention to that. And we perhaps should have tried to adjust our presentation to match the 30-second time span of well, attention. Well, isn't that what USA brain. Today did? Not really. No, uh, I mean, USA Today came along, well, and not only did it bring color to the newspapers, but yeah. it, it had short stories. Short and, stories, yeah. yeah, but maybe not short enough. Is that it? No, I think it was fine, except that there's a national newspaper. You'd get it in your hotel right. room, but it didn't help you find out what your local city council was doing. Hmm. So it never, I don't hear much about USA Today anymore. No, it's hardly, hardly anything to yeah. it. It's actually inserted as pages in the uh, oh, yes. papers around right. the country. That yeah. is what USA Today is mostly now. Well, Ellen, radio is pretty good at condensing information into a short amount of time, right? That is true. You know, you have a certain amount of time to report on things. However, there is a wide disparity between radio stations. In other words, WAMC, where we're speaking from right now, has a commitment to a higher level of intellectual discourse than, for example, some radio station where you have a shock jock, you know, just yelling at you. So I do think there are real differences. Right. But still, a person can 
listen to a story and it's in and out in 45 seconds or yeah. uh, or a minute or something. Whereas if you read that same story, like I was just listening to a WAMC report about a Pittsfield. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm wedded to it. Pittsfield City Council meeting, <laughs> which I think was story delivered in 45 seconds. And I guarantee that in the Berkshire Eagle, that story went on for 20 inches, right? I have no comment on the Berkshire Eagle. I see. But when it comes to Twitter threads, like a, twi- a thread is one tweet after another. It's hooked together. It tries to tell a story as a thread. I find them very unsatisfying to read, and they lack the context of a story. Immersed in these in these Twitter threads, I said, just give me a story. Give me five graphs. Don't give me 15 threads, because sometimes they get interrupted. There's no context, and I'm left feeling like I know a little bit about something, but sometimes I don't even know what we're really talking about. But some of the new digital newsletter platforms, like Axios, for example, their slogan is actually trademarked. They call it smart brevity. And that is not only a slogan, but it's an approach to covering the news. And it just means they have the same deep reporting, but they slice it differently so that you have a little headline, a little vignette. And you, because the great value of digital media is you can have a link. And if you want to pursue something further, you click on it and then you can see it. Whereas if you're on a page of a newspaper, I mean, I guess it's kind of like jumping a story off the front page. You see a little bit of the story on the front page. And if you want to read more, you can read that huge chunk of type that's inside. But the presentation digitally is so much more appealing in terms of actually being able to digest it. It's like the line that snakes back and forth at Disney World. You know, you don't see how long the line is. And so you get into it and you you can kind of tolerate it. I think that that is sort of the way that you can absorb deeper content with the smart brevity approach of Axios online, which to me, as a news platform, it's superior to print. I mean, I love the smell of newsprint. I loved working in newspapers, but for news consumption, I'm over print. I really am. Not I, but I'm older than you. (laughs) (laughs) Two dinosaurs. Yeah, right. The Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Brontosaurus. I just think that obviously print does not have people that move like that you can do on the websites. It does not have shorter stories, but it has a feel to it, at least for this old guy. I could read the New York Times online, and I do. But when I read the New York Times in print, I see stories that I don't see online. There's just something about it that's a one-to-one approach. And I'll admit to being a dinosaur on this. You know, mm. Axios does a good job of, they bulletize. You know, they tell you important information in bullet form, and they say, this is why this is important, this is why this matters. But I think that there will always be a place for long-form journalism or a good tale or a good writing, I guess. That's what I think print offers us is good writing. We talk about news I think Axios does a good job of, if you want to know what the news is, just inhale the news. That's a good approach. But if you really want a good story or a nice read, I think you have to turn to... Or a podcast. Or a podcast, yes. right, where you get some good Podcast would be a great story, well, great that, long you know, form. As much as we talk about how the Internet is killing print newspapers, things like podcasts, I don't know if we've talked about it on this program, but people are into podcasts and now will listen to podcasts in their cars instead of radio. And it has to be diminishing the audience of the traditional radio, or even public radio, which is doing very well generally. People like that approach more so than hearing a commercial every three minutes or whatever it is on radio. 
Yeah, definitely. I think terrestrial radio is really in some trouble. Well, certainly AM radio is likely to die Mm. with electronic vehicles because the interference created by the battery, by the extra electricity is Oh, that's fascinating. I hadn't heard that. We should note that this program is available as a podcast. Of course, yep. As is many of the WAMC programs, I think. Mm -hmm. God bless you. (laughs) See, I would call them podcasts. Right. We haven't had this discussion at the board meeting because I don't want to be a pain in the neck about it, but I don't believe technically that if you listen to the media project next week digitally it is a podcast it is merely a streaming version of the program that has already aired Mm -hmm. whereas a podcast in my opinion i think is defined as a separate entity that is produced specifically and has not appeared on the radio yet Mm. or on Mm. tv yet Mm. you know i bet our listeners could offer some thoughts media at wamc.org is our email and we'd be very glad to hear from you that's ira fussfeld and judy patrick and alan shartok and rex smith here with you on the media project which you can get at wamc.org of course that's a good place to find things here is another development Mm. in the news media industry that's worth talking about the wall street journal has named a woman as its editor first woman to run that newspaper the new york times has had a woman an editor. Boston Globe soon will, as we have said. And long ago, the Schenectady Gazette did, and that would be Judy Patrick. What difference does it make, Judy? Do you think that having a, a woman in the editor's chair made a difference? I do, because I grew up in this business with male editors, and most male editors, I will generalize, tended to do things a certain way. There was a certain top-down approach to ordering what news was going to be done and what stories to be developed that day or how things were going to be done. I think women bring a certain amount of compromise or cooperation to an endeavor. That's just been my experience with the women editors, but I think that's changed the business in general. I think a lot of the men or people of other genders who are running newspapers now are approaching the job from a more cooperative way of doing things. Not that there was a lot of yelling, but there was a lot of authority. 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 And I think women are more reluctant to embrace or to use the authority and power. They use it sparingly. They try to achieve their ends through other means. Sometimes that's effective. Sometimes it's not. Well, wouldn't you agree, and you're entirely correct about what the influence of a woman editor might be versus a male editor, but there would also be a difference if it was a black man or a gay woman or a transgender person. Whoever the editor is is going to bring his or her or their life experience to the job, and it doesn't mean that the product is going to be better or worse, but it is going to be different. It's true. I can remember reading a story before it goes to print and saying, weren't there any women we could talk to about this? Right, and a man editor might not come up with that question. Right, or when we were doing sexual assault stories, or even with dealing with young children, interviewing them, try to bring a level of compassion to the stories we ran or the photos we ran. Just bring that to the conversation that we would have. So did you find resistance to that, Judy? Not when you're the editor. (laughs) Not not that you knew knew of. You adopted a certain style, yes, I get it. Sorry. It's really a great thing. <laughs> so yeah. this new, I'm sorry, Rex, the, yeah. the woman who has been named editor of the Wall mm-hmm. Street Journal is a longtime Murdoch editor. Yes. I remember when Murdoch took over the Wall Street Journal, there was a lot of hand-wringing about what he might do to it and make it look like the New York Post. All these years later, is that still a fear? I don't read it that closely. I don't think so. I mean, I think the news coverage has been strong all this time. Yeah. He has not tinkered with that because that was a winning formula. The editorial page has always been bananas. 
just, uh, I think that's the technical term. This woman, Emma Tucker, the new editor of the journal, has been the editor of the Sunday Times in London, which is a fine newspaper and has not been a tabloidish kind of a thing. And so I don't think that there is that kind of a worry. Whenever people disagree with coverage of the journal, they'll say, oh, well, it's Murdoch. What do you think? I don't think he steps into that kind of stuff with that paper. I think you'd be killing the goose that laid the golden egg. Like Elon Musk is doing with Twitter. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. uh, I mean, I think Murdoch sets in motion evil in the sense of Fox News. I think Rupert Murdoch deserves the blame for the disintegration so much of mainstream media because he created the innovation of Fox News, which was let us intentionally bias our news product to meet a political end. And that took hold. We don't know what would have happened if he hadn't created Fox News. There surely would have been a breaking apart of media because of the digital revolution. But we might not have had as partisan a divide in the media. So how much credit or blame does Murdoch get or how much credit or blame does Roger Ailes get? I mean, I think Roger Ailes is really the architect. Murdoch obviously had to accept the premise of what he was proposing. Mm -hmm. But Ailes was the guy who came in uh, with his political operative background. Well, you know what Shakespeare said, a dying fish stinks from the head. So uh, (laughs) there you go. Did Shakespeare say that? Uh, I don't know. I (laughs) usually quote Shakespeare. He made up so much of the I think it was Elon Musk. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, you know, I do think the sensibility of women has really changed newsrooms from when I first started in the business. And two-thirds of the new journalists emerging from journalism programs are women. As is the case in most of education, higher education is becoming a place where women dominate, not men, which is an interesting shift in society. At the beginning of my career, women typically covered consumer affairs or consumer reports or weddings, engagements. Let's not forget, there were some real groundbreakers out there, women who covered big-time politics. Even locally, we had women in the 60s and 70s covering important beats, but they were by far the exception. Amazing. One thing that we need to talk about, which is a serious matter toward the end of the year, and that is the journalists killed on duty. The International Federation of Journalists has now reported that so far in 2022, 67 journalists have been killed because of the job they're doing. One of the most dangerous places in the world, by the way, is Mexico. 14 killed in just the first eight months of 2022. I don't know. I haven't seen the numbers in the last couple of months. But, you know, it is striking that you don't hear about dozens of doctors and nurses or teachers being killed because of the job they're doing. You don't even hear about that many politicians being assassinated by comparison to journalists. I think it would be interesting to see, is there a line of work aside from policing and military that is more at risk of death across the world than being a journalist? And to ask the question, why is it so risky? In other words, what is it about journalism that makes it so dangerous? They're very vulnerable. They're looking to talk to bad guys, and they're looking to expose the truth that the bad guys don't want exposed. You know, the the celebrity journalists they'll go into a war zone with bodyguards, or but the, you know the invest especially investigative journalists are out there, and they're meeting in back alleys with sources who don't want to be identified, and they're very much at risk. Uh, the Washington Post has done a, a really good series on fentanyl in Mexico, and as I'm reading this, I'm just wondering what kind of risk those reports face for all the months they've spent down there trying to gather information about the fentanyl traffic. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to raise, that when we read some of these stories that are just stunning, you have to think about the 
risk that the journalists take. And, you know, all that they get for it is Donald Trump saying, uh, you're liars. Or dead. Or dead, or yes, or they get killed. 375 journalists and media workers are now behind bars around the world. That's wow. a, a new high since the International Federation of Journalists started keeping track of that. 84 of those are in China. So that is also a peril. You, you lose your freedom for truth-telling. And it makes you wonder why people would engage in such work. It's a miracle that there were no journalists killed on January 6th. They, the protesters, were destroying cameras and, and the like, but I don't know if the journalists who were covering it were simply lucky or they didn't display press on their person so that people didn't know immediately who they were. But it's not a reach to think that they would have been targeted and killed if they were identified by that group. Only once in my career have I ever done any reporting in a war zone, and that was in El Salvador. And we were instructed to put use masking tape to put the big letters TV on the side of the car because, mm. you know, you couldn't write journalist, <laughs> periodista. But the combatants in El Salvador during the Civil War in the 80s would allow journalists to pass generally because they thought that their story could get told. Although I also was given a shirt by <laughs> humorously named SPCA, but the people laughed that it was the Society for the Protection of Journalists. Anyway, we were given the shirts that on the back said, periodista, no dispare, which means journalists don't shoot. It was meant as something of a joke, but it was a white shirt, and it was meant to be worn so that you wouldn't be mistaken for somebody if you happen to catch yourself in combat. And I hired a guy for 100 bucks a day who had been in prison and kind of knew his way around to talk us through uh, roadblocks and the like. And once we knew there was a dangerous roadblock, we hired a plane to take us to another part of the country rather than actually risk trying to go through a roadblock. It has become so much more dangerous since then in so many parts of the world. I wouldn't be doing it myself these days. I think it takes a special breed to do that kind of reporting, and we ought to be grateful to them. I would think. Uh, right, and the work. editors and the organization back home have to be as supportive as they can. I can remember, you know, even locally, if you're sending a photographer into a crowd and it gets violent and dangerous, you know, do you tell them to back off? Or, you know, you, they want to stay and get the photo, but do you want them to get injured? It's something editors and publishers struggle with all the time. Yep, I think you have a good point. You need to tell them to protect themselves, but get the story. I know. <laughs> Sorry. I just, I just think that the in this country, anyway, I can't speak for the rest of the world, but this country, those people, particularly on the far right, but maybe on the far left, have worked their followers into a frenzy criticizing the press. And it doesn't take more than one person to commit an atrocity against a press person. And I think that's one of the differences and one of the reasons why the numbers are going up is that people are just being urged to not trust, not believe, and not like people who are journalists and whatever the platform. Have you ever been threatened, Ira? Well, not for life or death. Other than for me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we have to go. We are out of time, unfortunately. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us again this week on The Media Project. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a... The Media Project is an inside look at media coverage of current events with WAMC's CEO, Alan Shartok, former Times Union editor and current Upstate American Substack columnist, Rex Smith, 
Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, and Daily Freeman publisher emeritus Ira Fussfeld. You can listen anytime to the Media Project at wamc.org or just schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcast. I'm producer David Gustino. Thanks for listening. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.